This is a test of the emergency podcast system. Repeat, this is a test of the emergency podcast system. Hello and welcome to Disaster Girls, a podcast about disaster movies. It's me, your host, Amanda Smith. And with me today is our guest, Bobby Wagner from the Tipping Pitches podcast. Bobby, introduce yourself. Say hi. Hi, Amanda. Um, It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about the movie Signs, uh, a movie that takes place in my hometown. So I have a lot of nits to pick um, and a lot of questions to pose for Philadelphia and also NYU legend M Night Shyamalan. But I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. That so that answered my next question because normally, like I was going to say, why did you pick Signs? And I knew about the baseball connection, but I didn't. So you're from Mel Gibsonville, Iowa. I'm from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where it takes place. Okay, because I, I recognize that's Pennsylvania, but I also see corn, and I'm just kind of like, is it Iowa? So it, it is Bucks County. Okay. It does have like a distinctly Field of Dreams, Iowa flavor to yes. the way that it's shot, but it takes place in, it, it, like the title screen, it says Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is right. just the county. It's not actually the name of a town. But then you see later in the movie when he goes into town to talk to other people or whatever, or to like get to get away from the news um, with the kids, they're in the town called Newtown, which is about 15 minutes from where I grew up. Yes. Wow. So how would your, I'm just going to get right to it. How would your town have reacted to, um, let's start with crop circles and then a full on ass alien invasion. How would that have gone down in terms of like the reality of your town? I, something about Pennsylvania culture that people should understand is that there's like, it's like very divided between like, you know, suburban idealism and also like very rural, more sort of like midwestern or even like southern culture and so i think that there would probably be like a lot of straight up doomsday preppers for an event like this in my hometown or like in the greater area of my hometown where this movie takes place um but i think you know the the movie itself is not it doesn't have like that wide lens on what is going on in the town around them it's really kind of like micro focused on the family um and i and like the one police officer who's apparently doing nothing else besides coming over to check on this family like on a daily basis um but i think that they probably would have um you know reverted into their basements okay uh maybe some of those basements might have had like whole wall of canned food and several weapons to prepare for this moment so that so what you're saying is that more people would have been prepared for this uh than anything that graham hess was in this entire movie because this was a man so wildly unprepared for any emergency you're saying all of his neighbors were were completely ready for this it's just that he particularly was not Yes, we talk a lot about like fight or flight, but mm-hmm. there's also like the third F, which is like freeze and do nothing, and, and that's what that's what our man Graham was doing. <laughs> Unbelievably, in this movie. he's just like so. thousand yard stare, not gonna do anything. No, no, there is. I mean, we have this. So, as I, I told you before, so this sort of the, this part of the podcast is normally called the reality index, and we talk about you know not necessarily if this would really happen, but within the world of the movie, like does that seem re- like believable, and. I got to say, not necessarily from the reality of the movie, but just from a personal standpoint, the minute that my personal home gets marked by aliens as a place they want to go, yeah, I'm out. Yeah, I'm out. I'm not taking a vote with my five and seven-year-old. This is how I know. Yeah, well, first of all, a a shining moment for democracy in this movie. I wrote that down in my notes. It was like... uh, He's voting with the kids. It's a tie. He gives himself an extra vote. I'm like, I didn't read that part of the electoral college 
um, yeah. in the Constitution, and then they overturn him anyway. A shining moment for democracy. But how I know that a movie like this would never be made about me is that um, I would I would leave. Yeah. And I would also, if if I didn't leave, I would give up a lot faster. Than people <laughs> in movies like this. I feel like they. It's not so much that they didn't give up as they just happened to be lucky enough that the aliens weren't more aggressive, like or competent. Yeah. I feel like stacking up a bunch of bags that can be sliced open in front of an opening is not necessarily not giving up. Like, it's, it's trying, but it's trying by sort of pawing ineffectually, you know? It just... It, Graham was making some choices in this. Um, if you haven't watched the movie, obviously, Graham is Mel Gibson. He's a former Episcopalian priest, um, so everyone calls him father because if there's one thing M. Night Shyamalan loves, it's subtlety. Um and because he's a, and he is of course a father. He has a father to two kids, and then his wife's brother lives with them as well. And uh, aliens have decided to specifically find their farm. So, like, okay, fine. You think that maybe the crop circles? He thought maybe the crop circles were town never do well. Um, what's his name? Michael Showalter, in an mm-hmm. amazing five second cameo. Right. I want to know what his audition was like. Like, what about the the audition he gave was like, and I was like, this guy's a baddie. I think that he was just able to embody a trope really easy, like really quickly. Yeah, it must and, be. And that served the purpose. I've never um, seen anyone look less suited to be wearing a moto a moto vest. <laughs> also, with just like the camera right in front of his face on a desk. Uh-huh. Interestingly, so the first thing I noticed about this movie um, was that like M Knight has such a distinct and unique take on like perspective yes. of where he puts the camera. It's very Spielbergian. It's obviously very, he's very influenced by Spielberg and like the various alien movies that have come before him, you know, close encounters of the third kind being one of them. But from the very beginning of the movie, it it's clearly like, it's less about the script. It's less about what they're saying and, and what they're talking about in terms of their backstory with mm-hmm. the, with the lost mother and it's so much more about like creating this sense of something being slightly off. Yeah. Like with where the camera is at like slightly strange angles, low angles, really close on some faces with some people in the background. And, you know, that that example of like the, the town ne'er-do-well, mm-hmm. um, the camera's in like a really weird spot right there. It's just I find it so interesting to go away from an M. Night movie for a long time and then come back to it. Yeah. Because he has such a unique flavor. And of course, he's known for the twists and stuff. But this movie, not really as much so. Like, there's not really a huge twist in yeah. this movie other than, I guess, like, the solution at the end, which is how they defeat the alien. Yeah, there's nothing in this movie that, like, reconstructs your understanding of the entire world of the movie, which, like, most of his other movies, you that's his twist reconstructs it. And, yeah, I like, the, film, the movie itself is beautifully shot. Um, M. Night Shyamalan, this is one of, like, his vibes movies. You're right. There isn't a lot, like, there's not a ton narratively, but it's all about just he creates a sort of vibe to the whole film, and then you go with it, and it just gets increasingly upsetting and scary. Um, Like having Mel Gibson walk in a very tight shot through a cornfield, and you're just like, yeah, that corn is nothing but aliens. It's fucking, yeah. It's incredibly It's so so interesting how he he does that, too, and that scene is a really good example of it. There's so many close-ups on their faces Mm -hmm. without ever cutting back to what they're seeing. Oh, yeah. In this movie, which is really not how a lot of horror movies work. Like the way that they create the scare 
is that there's a close-up on the face, there's a close-up on the face, and then, ooh, boom, suddenly we switch back to what that person is seeing, and it scares the shit out of you. Yeah. Like, that. that is, I think of, like, the scene in barbarian where they finally go down into have you seen barbarian so here's the thing i'm never gonna have seen any of the scary movies you reference and that's totally okay, cool great. i am There's... a deep coward i the fact that i even watched signs was like i i have a serious alien phobia and i was like no we're doing this i'm gonna fucking i'm i'm knuckling down and i'm gonna watch this movie and maybe never sleep again um, you put on your very brave hat to watch signs i did i put on my very very brave hat and uh multiple times the movie had to be like okay and none of this is real and i know none of this is real because this came out like 20 years ago i'm gonna be okay that was all <laughs> i could go with um <laughs> but yeah so, so is signs yeah. is signs a movie that you know the listeners are like really into you doing like it was this one of the movies that like people have been asking you to do but you wouldn't do it because you're too afraid to do like horror movies. <laughs> so yeah, so this was one where so this was one where I've always I've always said like my rule is I'm never going to recommend or ask anybody to do like be like, yeah, we should do an alien movie this week. But if a guest wants to do an alien movie, I will suck it up and do an alien movie because it's like a major part of the genre. Um so we've done them a few times like we did Independence Day and we've done War of the Worlds and I think this is the third alien movie that we that we would have done. Um but yeah, it, it is truly just like if if I'm going for an alien movie, it's got to be because someone has asked specifically and I have put on my big girl hat and decided to do an alien movie. Um, so, yeah, no. And, and and you when you had messaged initially been like it's a baseball, it's a baseball disaster movie. And I was like, how can we not? How can I not have the Bobby on to talk about the only disaster baseball movie out there? Like, that's just that's perfect. I don't think that I really. I mean, I must have said that, but you I don't did. think I really remembered how much baseball is pivotal to the plot of this movie. <laughs> it's like a straight up baseball movie. And they like talk about it. They talk about Joaquin's character statistics. And that's a character that we haven't really mentioned so yeah. far. But and him being like the pivotal, like, OK, we, he finds his bat. You know that that bat is going to come back up. It's like after Chekhov's bat, after they mentioned that it's mm-hmm. on the wall in the house. Um, <laughs> I thought. Joaquin's character yeah perfectly embracing the himbo baseball player oh yeah I thought he totally got it to me that told me that M. Night gets baseball culture oh for sure yes he is he is a perfect baseball himbo like I love that basic that essentially he just come back and it's as if he's got like a drinking problem like his problem is just he doesn't play baseball anymore and once that's not in his brain there's not a whole lot else in there Yes. It's, it, there's nothing else that he needs to kind of go through. It's truly just, well, either he plays baseball or he stares at walls. And exactly. I feel like that's true of a lot of baseball players. He's a man going through the world thinking only one phrase, and that is see ball, hit ball. <laughs> that's all that passes through that man's head. Truly. Yes. Which, you know what? That's like, who doesn't who doesn't love a baseball himbo? You and I both, we love a baseball himbo. Yes. If not I for wanted baseball, him to be... I want him to be like 40 pounds bulkier, you know? Yeah. This was like pre-Joaquin being able to like really commit to the to the body transformation for his roles, which he has done more recently in his career. Yeah. But um, I, I wanted him to be like six foot five, real yeah. corn fed energy. Yeah, he's not built, okay. like, he's not built like a slugger. He's built really lively. For, yeah, he's yeah. built like a utility infielder. Exactly. Yeah, he's got some real Kike Hernandez body vibes. <laughs> But like, I do, I actually, which kind of works for me as a concept only because it sounds like he kind of 
failed out of baseball. He failed out of the baseball in the minors. And so he wouldn't have gone through all of the bulking up that happens after like the first or second year that you're in the majors. So I was kind of like, okay, yeah. he's still got his, his pre-majors body, that kind of. But yeah, I would love him to be a Roy Hobbs strapping like corn boy. <laughs> the type of body that you can only attain from eating a one slice of white bread with one piece of iceberg lettuce and a sad tomato and a slice of cheese on it, which is what they feed you in the minor leagues. Oh, God. It truly is. I, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't be opposed to an entire prequel that's just watching Joaquin Phoenix as a minor league <laughs> baseball player. I would not be opposed to that. That would be really good. Yeah, Maybe we can do that in recasting. There we go. Cause just because, like... Watching Joaquin Phoenix try to puzzle through everything that happens in minor league baseball would be really entertaining to me. Just watching him pick up that sandwich and kind of pick apart the pieces. I could see that. Did you, um, so we've got, yes. So we've got uh, the minor league baseball playing brother, Joaquin Phoenix, who has come to the family farm after, um, he's come to the family farm after his sister has died in a hit, not hit and run, hit and pin accident. Um, yeah, I had some we're... questions about the, the medical science behind that one, but nonetheless. There's no, yeah, that was, so that's my thing. So the whole thing in this movie is that, like, a Graham Hess, Mel Gibson's character, is this former Episcopalian priest who has decided he's no longer, uh, believes in, he's, he's lost his sense of faith because his wife has died in this horrible accident. But it's a fucking medical miracle that this woman, pinned in half, apparently just like a torso and head, against a tree and she's having a whole ass conversation with her last thoughts and wishes for everybody i we don't eat the medical the medical possibilities of it were were questionable we'll go with that questionable but i guess worth it for the purposes of the story there's kind of like a little bit of like story scripting nonsense going on with that but i thought it worked i want to say so i don't i don't know how you feel about movies like this but I, th- I find like a crisis of faith, mm-hmm. even if it's not necessarily religious like it is in this one, like so explicitly religious. I find crisis of faith to be a, a really like fascinating um, motivation for genre movies like mm-hmm. this or for really any movie. But especially in a movie like this where you're you're taking um, the alien invasion movie and you're like inserting it with these sort of more like rich and complex and nuanced ideas like a crisis of faith like this was just a family in a house i do think and you know we're not going to get to ranking this movie until the end or whatnot but i do think that that takes away from this movie a little bit um there needs to be something you know genre movies like this um like a quiet place like there needs to be something built into like the central dynamics between the characters motivating them for why this disaster like why it's relevant for us to be following this family during this disaster and i think that 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 crisis of faith works really well as a shorthand of course there are ways to do that really badly like the crisis of faith is just i don't know like like lazy motivation but i thought i thought in this movie it worked really well what did you think you know for me it because of things like the i love the concept of a crisis of faith i i found my issue is that Ultimately, and it, like I recognize this is as much a problem with me as anything, but it's like mm, I don't love M. Night as a screenwriter in terms of him understanding human motivation for things, yeah, um, or the way humans talk, or the way humans talk. Although, like the dialogue, Just a lot of stilted dialogue. The in dialogue this. in this movie is so fucking weird, but also kind of works because yes. it's so weird. And he also, 
like he's not a bad director of people like um george lucas can't direct a performance like we know this m night Shyamalan. it's not that he can't direct a performance it's that the performance he wants out of people is so fucking weird it's just shy of human um and so it, it and you end up with some really odd odd line deliveries of dialogue that could have been delivered naturally that makes his dialogue sound more awkward I feel like I feel like a big part of it is just how the humans are saying the words make the dialogue sound more stilted than it actually is because it's there's funny bits too like he's got a sense of humor it's a little yes. bit of an a Roman of a Roland Emmerich sense of humor like he's definitely a little bit of kind of a cheese ball about it but he he's funny the sequence when um Graham and Joaquin Phoenix are running around both sides of the house trying to scare off really the funny. intruder amazing Mel Gibson running like fucking Mel Gibson it's that difficulty of like okay this man is a reprehensible human yes that being said this is a very good performance and him running around the side of the house yelling I'm crazy I'm out of my mind because he doesn't know how to scare off an intruder is a great <laughs> scene. It's almost like in that moment, it's almost like he's reading the the part of the script that you actually weren't supposed to say. Yes. Like the part that a script, a screenwriter might put in there as like. He know, runs around the side huh. of the house crazy out of his mind. Crazy. Yes, yeah. exactly. But he's just straight reading that <laughs> yes. as the dialogue, which I thought was really funny and actually worked really well. I thought Gibson was the only one in this movie yeah. who was doing that sense of like just short of human well. Yeah. Because he already had this like crisis of faith where everything about his brain chemistry kind of like shifted and his, um, you know, he could turn it back on when his brother asks him to or when his kids need him to. Yeah. But that is like a version of like depression, grief that people actually go through. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was weird that like every other character in the movie was also basically doing that too. Yeah. I thought like, M. Night sort of fell in love with the the sixth sense line delivery, the sixth sense style line delivery, where yeah. it's like everybody is just kind of like staring straight at camera, reading in like a deadpan, really creepy, anxious way. Mm -hmm. And it shows up here in this movie again. It shows up again in, in The Village, which is a movie that I actually really like also. Yeah. And shot nearby where I grew up too. So these these movies are like weirdly big to like, the towns where right, I grew up in because, because he, yeah exactly yeah um because he's such a like a Philadelphian director yeah um but those like that being every character the way that every character delivers the lines I thought got a little bit stale like halfway through and then but then by the time the action kicks up like I'm, I'm back in yeah. you know by the time it's like okay you might see an alien or you might see the foot or the the fingers of an alien I'm like all right Sign me back up. Oh my, God. my attention is focused again. The alien heel. Oh God, the alien heel scared me so bad. Like that. I, like that whole sequence. One, you're not getting me out into a cornfield at night when I hear strange sounds. When we already are like, well, we've heard their aliens have been seen around the country, and we're hearing clicking noises on the baby monitor. No, not yeah. going into a field on my own. That just like, dude, you're just asking for it. Um. And yeah, that fucking heel, which is a ridiculous thing. Like, it's literally just a stunt guy's Achilles tendon painted green. <laughs> That's, yeah, I, I appreciate that with the character and the monster design. They're like, we're just going to get tall guys and paint them. And that's what we're yeah. going to go with. Like, it does have that nice 50s B-movie vibe. It's also weirdly effective. And it's also kind of awkward and hilarious. The, yeah, uh, it's. 
it's a movie that you can tell is like cleverly made where you know like the he used the budget in the places that he felt like he needed to yeah like in getting uh joaquin to do it and getting mel gibson to do it um and in like the the multiple angles of the shots that he's getting like that there's clearly like budget going into all of that stuff and then for things that are going to sap up your budget right away like the like alien invasion where there would need to be like 14 spaceships in Mm -hmm. the sky like if you were actually going to show that there goes all of your budget and this is still early in his career and m night is famous for funding all of his own movies and so all of his movies typically operate on a very low budget for like a a medium to high return depending on how successful the movie is and it's really fascinating what he's done career-wise with like being able to take ownership over his own productions and like have total control and like operate next to and adjacent to the studio system but this movie is like so clever classic m night in so many ways that you only show like the foot of the alien you only show the finger of an yeah. alien and then at, and then till the very end you actually get some cgi in there where it's like you're you're you know your mileage may vary depending depending on what like decade you're watching this in on how good that looks but having the aliens only really show up on this like tiny little 8 by 12 tv screen is such a clever storytelling Super, technique that yeah. saves the the production so much money it's like there's there's a real like craft and cleverness and genius going into this movie even if some of the like textbook like wrote dialogue things or like you know flat deliveries of lines is is like not your bag necessarily oh yeah it's well i mean it's also like this movie holds visually looks fucking great you it know it awesome. looks unbelievable yeah 20 years later and it looks fantastic partly because there isn't a lot of cgi i mean other than the one at the end when the alien the the specific the fingerless alien with a vendetta is in their house and we finally get a full body view and yeah he looks a little rubbery um and he's also I made the joke already, but like he's kind of hovering back and forth like he's an NPC waiting to exactly, be. Exactly. I thought the exact same thing. Yeah. Real NPC energy to that. The, like, the shifting the body weight back mission. and forth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was just waiting to be noticed, too. That's what I appreciate. Like, I appreciate that the alien had the sense of drama to be like, I'm just going to sneak into this house and stand in a dark corner until he notices me and then I'm going to steal his kid. Like he doesn't, he wants to make sure Mel Gibson is looking him dead in the fucking eye when he poisons this child because that's his plan for revenge. And I appreciate a petty alien. I don't think we get enough pettiness in our alien movies. Yeah. There's clearly, there's, there's something going on with the aliens where it's like they have the extraterrestrial technology that can get them here and Mm -hmm. create these crop circles and they have, you know, the the ability to, like, come to Earth seemingly in droves. But yeah. then at the same time, they have, like, a sense of reason and understanding that they shouldn't just kill everything the second that they see it. They want to, like, break in and, and create terror before killing the people. Like, they don't just bust these doors down even though... Yeah. Based on, like, the rest of the context of the movie, you should think that they would be able to. Based because on- they're, like moving so fast and jumping on roofs and right. disguising themselves with invisibility and all these different, you know, skills that they have. It's very strange. Right. I mean, it's it's weird that the raptors in Jurassic Park can figure out door handles, but <laughs> like the aliens in Signs have issues with concepts like opening a door or sliding down a chimney. Like these, yes, I fully agree, especially because, so at one point, which we, I always forget like the extra Culkins, 
And yes. so yeah, this one's Rory Culkin. And I forgot. I saw it on the on the like the backsplash on yeah. the, on on Max or whatever when I when I went to go fire it up, and I was like, is that is that Kieran? I know it's not Macaulay. No. And then I turned it on and I was like, fucking, there's your bonus Culkin. Bonus. Your Rory. Every every set of brothers has to have a bonus, and if they're you know you've got the the Luke Evans, you got the yeah. Rory Culkin, you've got Frankie Jonas. Exactly, bonus Jonas. Bonus made Jonas. Famous. Yeah, you just you gotta have an heir, a second heir, and then a spare. That's how Hollywood. <laughs> that's how Hollywood handsome men work. Exactly. And yeah, no. So Rory Culkin giving just the most adorable, like not weirdly precocious, just wise performance. Yeah. Like I, Rory Culkin as a as a child actor, like has very much the vibe of oh, okay, I understand this kid. Like when he wanted to record, I love the moment when aliens arrive. It's on the news broadcast, and he like wants to record it for posterity. Yeah, I understand that child on a deep physical and media. Yes, and like that he's like this is sig- historically significant, and we need to be able to show this to our children. <laughs> it's like yeah, that is the sort of weird, wise child that like who's also a little neurotic who I understand. He's um, like the the type of kid where like you get him at the family barbecue and everyone's like he got such an old soul. Yeah, you know? this for kid, sure. This kid's got an old soul. Old soul. A wry sense of humor, a wit about him. You yeah, know? You say that about the kid. That that's the kid whose friends like be, befriends the weird old guy in your neighborhood and not like in a creepy way, just like they enjoy talking about stocks together. <laughs> and like yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's just Rory. Yeah, Rory Culkin in this. Like great, great child actor performance. This is his performance, and Abigail Breslin's given less to do in this. Like she's very cute, um, but definitely like I want to see them in a support group with Dakota with Dakota Fanning from um, War of the Worlds, like a child Children of the Apocalypse support group, so that they can really all with like particularly Children of the Apocalypse with terrible fathers, so they can all really understand and bond and work through their trauma together. Yeah, uh, don't give that uh, that idea away for free. I, that's a <laughs> that's a thirty minute sitcom. Okay, I'll retract it. No one who's listening to this make just this, bleep make... it all out. No, no. If you say it on a podcast and then you say, "Actually, I own that." That's yeah. how intellectual property law works. That is States. your. Right. I don't know if you knew that. Oh yeah, yeah no. We've been I didn't... doing that on tipping pitches for years. Oh, I, so it's like declaring bankruptcy if you just say bank. Exactly, it's exactly like that. You My say, God. "I own that now." Yeah. Okay, so guys, own. I own the uh, disaster children support group concept. <laughs> Please, no one take that. I'm never going to do anything with it, but please don't take it. Hollywood executives everywhere. It's like, damn it. I know. They, and there's they, such a big listener base here for us. This one weird trick <laughs> to own all intellectual property in Hollywood. That's actually, as as the writers are striking, it's particularly because we want to make sure that that, that uh, component continues. Stays in the minimum basic agreement. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, but going back to the uh, the aliens having difficulty accessing the house, we do see like there's a weirdly prescient book that Rory Culkin checks out from the library or, or buys from the bookstore. Weirdly prescient book that happens to have like a depiction of their house as it's like a depiction of the house being attacked by aliens with a man and two dead children on the front lawn. And it's super specific. Is it two dead children? Because I thought it looked like two dead dogs. And that freaked were, him out. I thought they were two dead bodies. Like, I thought they were two I couldn't dead. really tell. It, I don't... Yeah. It, 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 it kind of just... It's just supposed to be unsettling. But also weirdly... Yes. But they're like, that's our house. And so I was surprised that the aliens hadn't read the book and thought, maybe <laughs> we can fire on the house. Like, I just, Right, exactly. Know. 
Maybe we can land one of these spaceships that we're able to put up an invisibility wall that crushes bird skulls. Oh we, maybe God. we can do something with this piece of technology rather than try to just pick the lock. Like yeah, a, manually like break a and petty enter. burglar. <laughs> they <laughs> didn't even kick the door down. Like, that yeah, was a we're wood doing, door. I, I, I like that we're like most of this podcast so far has been Monday morning quarterbacking the aliens who we don't hear talk at all, who no. are not like the interesting or complex characters that you're supposed to talk about. But we're like, are we sitting here being like, are we sure they were actually that good? You know, rank them in comparison to the War of the Worlds area aliens. They don't look very good in comparison. Yeah. The, oh, the War of the Worlds aliens had a game plan. They executed. The only thing that the only reason that they went away was because of a virus they didn't know was existing versus the aliens that let's be real didn't do their homework in signs and came to a water-based planet despite having water allergies like if we're going if we're putting head-to-head the signs aliens and the war of the world's aliens in terms of who's going to be able to conquer this planet i'm putting my money on the war of the world's aliens every time these signs aliens they were they they absolutely did not do their research they showed up to work and were like we can wing this yeah i i um i would take these aliens Every day of the week, twice on Sunday, over like Cloverfield. Like, get me out of there. Oh, God. Cloverfield, yeah. we're donezo. Yeah. That's one of the ones where I'm just like, I'm jumping in the river. We're good to go. Yeah. I'm, I've had a nice life. Thanks for playing. No, that's I, like, there's certain, there's certain alien invasions where you're just like, ha, like, I've, I've gamed in my head, like, okay, what do I do in the case of an alien invasion? And I've worked out a lot of different escape plans. Um, just, you know, like, it's good to play. And I also, like, have recognized that I, like, what I need to do for a zombie apocalypse in every apartment I've lived in is, like, okay, where's my yeah. safe spot? What's not? Yeah. But with You these... could probably sell a lot of books if you just uh, print that up, you a- know? Apparently. apparently. According to this movie, that's the way to do it. Yeah. If I specifically predict, I, all you have to do is predict one alien invasion correctly and you're set. <laughs> that's the key. It's like those like uh, Twitter accounts that just tweet like every possible free agent signing and then delete all the ones that are wrong. And oh, then God. they're like, see, I, I predicted this 12 months ago. God. Oh, is that how they do it? Yeah, that's how they do it. Damn it. Exposed. Oh, Exposed. my. I've always been like, how did they do this? But I'm never sure how. Because there's yeah. always someone who has the gift of prophecy. And I wonder. Right. That's this what is it how is. the sausage gets made. This is honestly that. Thank you for answering that. Because I've never wanted to fully ask how do these people just randomly predict this stuff. And yet. Because there's. There's been a few things that go viral. I'm like, wow, that person was prescient. And no, they just, okay, so they just were tweeting every possibility. Yes, exactly. God damn it. I'm like Doctor Strange. Oh, man. I feel, I feel so taken. Duped. I do. I feel hoodwinked. Bamboozled. Is, thank you for, all of those are how I'm feeling right now. <laughs> like bamboozled and hoodwinked are very good words for this because it's not just a sense of like, oh, I feel uh, like betrayed intellectually. I also, there's a bit of whimsy to it. So thank you for bamboozled and hoodwinked. This is a whimsical <laughs> sense of betrayal I'm feeling right now. Yes, of course. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I definitely, uh, the science aliens, listen, I don't understand their strategy. I don't totally get their door-to-door um, visiting children's birthday parties thing. Yeah. Sneaking yeah. around in the bushes. But I appreciate the drama of it. Like, I... I don't get it tactically, but I do get it from the standpoint of like, well, this is going to absolutely like I want to make an entrance and they wanted an entrance and that the jump scare in that movie or in the in the in the home video like news clip is fantastic. Even knowing that that was going to happen, like I was watching it. I have heard that scene described to me. The scene scared me when it was described to me as a like teenager. And I was like, no, okay, 
You know what's going to happen. There's going to be an alien. It's going to be okay. It's going to walk through the frame and freeze like Bigfoot. You're okay, Amanda. You know what's going to happen. Still scared the shit out of me. But also, objectively, it's hilarious. It is really funny. It's and so also, funny. the kid, for some reason, says the, like the most important line in the video in English. Yeah. <laughs> he's like speaking in Spanish the whole time. This video comes from Mexico City. And at the end, he's like, for my English viewers. Yeah. He's making sure to do the bilingual, you know, he's the, he's the south of the border equivalent to Rory Culkin. He's like, this is historically <laughs> important. I have to say this one in English because Americans don't translate shit. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It was, you know, he that kid had a sense of drama and I appreciated that. That's a clever bit of, um, I, I don't know, like plot moving the ball forward because, you know, you can tell M. Night is, of course, like heavily influenced by a lot of the sci-fi. Yeah alien movies that have come before him you know like you watch this movie and you think a lot about like close encounters i already mentioned and like you know invasion of the body snatchers like that weird feeling that something is off and it feels like something is already permeating society but you don't know what and by the time you figure it out it's too late um and even when they were like boarding up the houses i was like thinking the whole time i was like this is basically just like m night's version of the birds the alfred hitchcock movie like this is the same exact thing that they do at the end of the birds it leads to the same exact moment um, in terms of dramatic tension, but that yeah. that home the home footage and like the newscasts and the radio broadcasts and the conspiratorializing and mm-hmm. all of those things that he folds in, you can tell like this is part of like M Night's project. Is like I'm interested in modern things. I'm interested in you know genre history, and I'm interested in like the sci-fi and the twist element that a movie can bring. And that home footage stuff like really worked well for me because. That, that is, like, exactly how it would go. Yeah. You would just get, like, streams and streams. This is pre-social media, well, too, so you're just getting that's... it on the news. Yeah. But you'd get, like, streams and streams of video where it'd be, like, the newscaster has to say, like, this is the most up-to-date thing we have. We believe it to be true, but how can we really know? And it creates this, like, mass hysteria, this mass panic. Obviously, it's, like, earned in this case because the aliens are here. Yeah. Uh, um, but I, I thought that that felt very true to life, and it felt very, like pulling on the same all of the same like cultural heartstrings of like stuff like the Zapruder film and like stuff like Bigfoot sightings mm-hmm. and all of those sorts of things. So well I thought that that was well played. You know, we we bag on his script a little bit, we bag on his dialogue yeah. and stuff, but there's little clever things like that within the vehicle of the movie that I think work really well. Yeah, in retrospect, like I don't think cuz this came out in 2002. So we're basically like a year or 18 months removed from 9/11 at that point. Which yeah. means that we've barely entered like had, for, for the youths among us, we didn't used to have a 24-hour news cycle. This didn't exist. And it didn't, like, the ticker under the screen didn't exist until 2001 when it was 9-11. And, like, they needed to update information so regularly, but also they were rerunning footage. So they had the ticker that was added to the bottom. That didn't exist prior. And even, like, cable news had only really come into existence in 97 with Clinton's uh, impeachment hearings. So we're, this is all, like, this form of a news media is still really new in the context of this film. We're only like five years into this news media form of news media existing. And I think he gets really fast and he predicts very accurately, not just like what the news cycle would look like, which, yeah, obviously it's going to be this, you know, we're getting unverified footage. We've checked to confirm that this isn't CGI. These are home videos that we're getting from around the globe. All of those things. Absolutely. But then also the, the, you know, because we find out that, like, like Mel Gibson puts the whole family basically on, like, we're not watching TV anymore after Joaquin Phoenix has been sitting in a closet 
for what seems to be at least 12 to 14 hours staring at a television. He's yeah. sitting Incredible in, metaphor un- right there. Unbelievable. He's just like sitting in, in the Fableman closet, basically. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, a real touch grass moment for your boy there. Like you gotta get you gotta get away from the TV for a sec. Even though it proved I don't know, there's like weird motivations here because it was actually he should have been watching that because they let like a whole day and a half go by. Yeah. Where they're not watching any news and they've basically like confirmed that the aliens are here in that day and a half. Yeah, like there's there's definitely times when you need to step away from that. Like I, I get into those those loops of like I'm just gonna I'm something is happening, I'm gonna put the news on in the background until something changes. There's got to be a fine line between that and what they choose to do. Because, yeah, I would in the 36 hours since the alien sighting was first confirmed, I would like to know where those ships are. Like, just do an occasional check-in. Especially given that my farm has been marked specifically by these exact aliens. Yeah, exactly. Like, I just want to know for just to keep tabs on them. Like, it might just be a good idea. Yeah. yeah, and especially once you learn that not only has my farm been marked, the aliens are here. Also, they can make their ships invisible. I would definitely like to know what the aliens are up to if there's an invisible spaceship hovering in my backyard. Yeah, I'm not just going to like go to work next day. You know, I'm no. not logging on to the Zoom call <laughs> the day after that. It's one of those weird things that like, because I obviously like in the last few years we've lived through quite unprecedented times um but i i think a lot of on january 6th i was i'm I'm work from home but like i was sitting at my desk and watching on a screen watching potentially the fall of our democracy while still getting calls of customers being like uh where's my fedex package and having to call (laughs) fedex and i'm sitting there like when does the adult tell us to go home when does the adult dismiss class like the way that you know in school you like when when does someone step in and say we don't have to do this anymore other things are happening in this world and as it turns out no one does is what no. i learned that day because no. like occasionally one of us would kind of tentatively in the in the microsoft teams chat be like so weird we're still getting calls huh and everyone be like <laughs> yeah because you also don't know the politics of your coworkers, so like you don't want to get into it but you're like eh, anybody else um watching the news right now you- you just get radio silence back from your coworker because they're actually at January 6th yeah, exactly. also. It's like, ooh, we lost Johnny. Ooh, several people are handling co- client situations, but also are crapping on Nancy Pelosi's desk. <laughs> um, they just wanted to see what was on the laptop, Amanda. Like, they're just asking questions. Right, right. They thought it was a tour. <laughs> but yeah, the the that sense of like, okay, when does an adult step in was real. And so watching these kinds of movies is always really interesting to see, like, when do people decide that their lives, they can't keep carrying on their lives and that, like, oh, yeah. things are different now. And I've never in any of these movies seen someone cling to not doing that as hard as Mel Gibson's character does. He's a man in denial. He's, you know? He is so deep into, he's like, yeah, aliens have been spotted. I don't care. We're having, yeah. we're having a brunch at this diner. The news, the newscast thing pays off really well because then at some point, the they go back to the TV in, in the closet under the stairs, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's off. The broadcast is off, and you just get like that old timey like no connection sign on yeah. there, and nothing is coming through. And at that point, I was like, oh shit, it's, it just got real, you know? Yeah, like, 
Yeah. We just got the tension just ratcheted up. It's a very movie type, you know, like uh, the storytelling Oh, for sure. It's like picking like, up the phone and there's no dial tone. Like it's, it's, exactly. it's one of those moments where you're like, oh, nothing is normal now. Exactly. We've lost it all. We've lost television yeah. in America. Yeah. Uh-oh. We're screwed. Yeah, I mean, uh, truly, there. if we ever didn't have broadcast television, that would be the moment I'm like, oh, no, things are bad. Like, this is now the time for my go bag because I've seen Jim Cantore out there in some wins. And if, <laughs> like, if there, there is no shortage of poor decision making and reporting, if they're not out yeah. there, no. Bad yeah. shit's for, gone down. For all of our um, uh, Philadelphian listeners who you know love the movie signs, appreciate M Night's work. Um, I'm just going to give a quick shout out to you know Glenn Hurricane Schwartz. That's the local weatherman in the area that this movie takes place. So maybe we could have gotten a Glenn Hurricane Schwartz cameo. Oh, I love that. Now I I know I I recognize that the answer is probably yes. He made it up himself. But is there any chance that his middle name is actually Hurricane? Uh, no. Damn it. I think he was. I, I hope that he didn't make it up himself. You know, anytime I hear someone who has a nickname like yeah. that, I kind of hope that they were given it at some point. He's a he's an interesting cat. He wears a bow tie every day. Um, he's a short man with a lot of energy, and I respect his grind. I I love like I love a regional news uh, weatherman. Here in LA, we got Dallas Rains, and that is his oh. last name. Wow. Which like yeah, That's what's nominative determinism at work right there? Right, like you don't have a lot of choices in that one. Um, and so I just, I love it when a, when a weatherman specifically has the name that of like the job he does. Oh my God. I just looked him up. What a bow tie on that man. He had a mustache at one point. Yeah, he did. He sure did. Wow. I adore him. Oh, love this tiny man. Him and Jim Gardner holding it down in the Philadelphia area for decades. He's known for his hurricane coverage. So I have to assume that he got that nickname because he gained his experience with hurricanes at the National Hurricane Center from 1974 to 1977. He's a meteorologist with a Wikipedia page. Like, yeah. That's a win. Oh, you he's won, a dog. meteorologist with like a lengthy Wikipedia page. He's got multiple paragraphs of his bio. Like that's in and of itself great stuff. And he's a Philadelphia native. Not the tangent that I expected us to go on, but one that I appreciate nonetheless. Uh, there's no shortage of times when I'm be like, well, that looks way more interesting than anything I meant to talk about. <laughs> I'm going to deep dive that instead. Yeah, that's... If, honestly, anytime that I'm talking about a movie, it's really just an excuse to talk about all the other shit. <laughs> like, yeah, of course. Yeah. That's what, what are podcasts for? What are podcasts if not... for if not for long segues into other things? Nonsense ramblings. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's... The movie Signs is a great fucking ride that if you spend too much time thinking about, you start to be like, why did I get on that ride in the first place? Like, it's just not, but it's great. It's a great ride. So who gives a shit that like there's large chunks of it that make no sense or that is not how humans would act? Who cares? It's still really entertaining. So yeah, I am going to get sidetracked into uh, a hurricane specialist for Philadelphia. How many hurricanes does Philadelphia have to deal with anyway? Like, is that that doesn't not seem like, a lot? Not a lot. Say. He must have come from somewhere before Philadelphia, where he got that nickname. He I did. Don't know. He it, he was at the National Hurricane Service, so he was like doing work with the Hurricane Service in Miami back down to the day, is what it said. As oh, I now know all of these things. Uh, so anyway, Lifelong Philadelphian Central High, Penn State. Wow, this man is <laughs> going down his resume. Yeah, now. 
No, this man is not just that he is a local legend. It's that he is a legend who's a local. And I, I mean, how can you not? How can That's you not right. love that? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, I will say one other thing. I, I don't know that this was th- anything thematic in the film. I think it just revealed something about M. Night Shyamalan's sleeping patterns. But they sleep in this film. When, yeah. when they're hiding in the basement... And every and this is after his son has fully like they go into the guys. If I can give you one bit of I, I know there's a lot of emergency managers who are probably also watching this movie having the same reaction I did. We have a huge chunk of emergency management twitters. Our listener base, Bobby, like that's <laughs> I I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like it's it's we've got most of emergency management Twitter in our in our listening to this podcast. It's yeah, meet meet people where they're at. That's what I always say as yeah. a podcaster. Yeah, I no, I'm thrilled. Like these were the people that I always growing up was like, wow, that's a job you can do is just like figure out how to keep a city from being chaotic. And it turns out that yes, it is. Um, but anyway, so he uh, so his complete inability in advance to prepare a go bag for his son with asthma. Yeah, what are you doing? Stressed me the fuck out, man. You gotta have an inhaler in every room. You gotta like. Here's the thing. They knew the alien. They board up the house. They're going to ride it out. He has no emergency kit. He has not. The only thing that they did to prep for this was to get to put boards over doors. And that's it. There's no like, okay, here's we're going to have to retreat into the basement. Here's food. They were going to have to eat each other within a day and a half if that alien invasion had lasted any longer. Like they were fucked. I know. They had no idea how long they were going to be down there. Yeah. They had no plan. There was no water in that basement. Because that was no. a basement from like 1942. Like there should have been a radio flyer down there. There, that is, that is the most vintage basement I've ever seen. Can I just say, speaking of things that they forgot mm-hmm. in, that, in that scene, mm-hmm. they also forgot to bring the dog in. But they also weirdly imply that... That, that um, dog is dead. That the dad... Well, yes, the, the dog is definitely dead. But they imply that Graham intentionally didn't bring the dog in because the animals had been acting strange yeah and the one dog had tried to attack the the daughter i didn't think the dog stuff paid off you know i know that there's like a whole running thing in movies where it's like don't kill the dog because it upsets a lot of people or you know do kill the dog because it elicits an emotional emotional reaction and a viewer is like i understand that but for me it's like if you're gonna kill the dog at least make the characters feel bad that they killed the dog you know like no spoilers but at the end of i am legend it's like yeah that is one of the most gut-wrenching dog deaths John Wick, a really motivating factor for the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. Like these are dog deaths, animal deaths that then have like a propulsive effect on the rest of the movie. This is just like the dog died and also the aliens are here. Yeah. Next. <laughs> next. And I was like, we didn't need to hear all that. I, I really cringed a little bit when I had to listen to the dog death. Oh, my God. I mean, that's yeah. The dog, the dog thing is so fucking creepy early when like. Obviously, like Hercules, I think the dog's Hercules is losing his shit and very clear. Like he seems like he's the dog has PTSD. Like this poor dog has seen an alien because he lives outside. He's seen aliens. The dog can't process it in his poor little dog brain. And that dog is needs serious dog therapy. And instead, he ends up getting killed by Rory Culkin trying to defend his sister. Terrible. And like that, it's it's pretty visceral and, and upsetting. But you're right. One would think there would be a payoff to that. Um, And instead, you just keep watching Mel Gibson be like, well, I'm, yeah, that dog, when he, then he's like, go tie up that, the other dogs, there's a second dog. And he like, 
go tie her up elsewhere. I'm like, you're not going to put her in, bring her in? Put her in like one bedroom and close the door? Nothing? You're just leaving her out there. The best they offer is that they put her in the garage and then the aliens get her. I, it was, it was again, I, the way that I finally was like, you know what, man, this is just a guy who is not prepared mentally or emotionally for an alien invasion yes. and he's going to keep treating it like shit's normal, even if it means that his child, his children's dog dies. Yes. And that's, yeah, it was, it was not maybe, it didn't endear him to me. Let's say no, that. It, it was kind of like a really lackadaisical attitude towards the dogs. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not in on that, you know? Yeah. You're, you're a reformed priest. That's the thing. Like, you're a reformed priest. And I, I do think, like, part of the difficulty with is Mel Gibson's every every actor is kind of like an undercurrent of what their what their energy is and his is always going to be anger. And yeah. so when you've got a guy who is has lost his faith but then his undercurrent is anger, it gets really tough to sympathize with his struggle. Um so the script doesn't help that though by not giving him the moments of like well i'm gonna be a responsible adult and bring the dog in or apparently his daughter has had some absolutely fucking immobilizing water phobia for her entire life yeah that he has never treated i'm glad that that actually made sense at the end of it yeah it was like a clever little turnaround or whatever pays off but like for the whole movie that i was thinking like is this daughter already an alien this daughter has this daughter like uh is this daughter a ghost like are we gonna hear some kind of turn where it's like or have the aliens poisoned the water she can somehow tell that and then it was like okay i understand no it's just that Um, she has but it's like this just like this weird trauma that yeah this weird compulsion that has never been treated by a professional yeah that it's it's not it's not pay it's not set up on payoff it's just neglect it's just straight up neglect yeah um which is not like again reality like from the outside it's infuriating as a character point within the reality of the world i do fully believe that graham hess has never once been like we should really yeah hand waving it yeah when he picks it up and this kid like the aliens there's a crop circle in the backyard and he his daughter doesn't want to drink the water he's like you should really outgrow this by now and i'm like man (laughs) this is the moment you're deciding to draw the line here now the world might be ending, and now you're like, actually, kid, you should be There's ashamed. There's too many like, glasses too around. Too many glasses. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, we haven't yet uh, talked about yeah. M. Night's role in this movie oh my God. as an actor. Yeah. What did you think? Okay, what did you think about that? I I really respect his audacity. Yeah. Because this is a man who should not be giving himself acting roles, <laughs> let alone acting roles with like dramatic monologues. Let alone dramatic monologues where he is one of the pivotal characters because he's the guy who killed the wife. It's a bold fucking casting choice. Uh, Listen, is he a good actor? No. Is he a compelling actor? No. Does it take me out of the film every fucking time? Yes. Every time. (laughs) Every time. Do I care? Not a chance. Don't care. When you first see it, when you first see that you see him out of the corner of the screen. Yeah. And if you didn't know that he's already in this movie... You're like, oh, is he doing a Hitchcock thing? Is he is he doing a Scorsese thing? Is he putting himself in his mm-hmm. movie for like ten seconds and as like a uh, Easter egg for 
for informed viewers. Yeah. Like, ah, whatever. And it's, it's like cheesy, but it's also like part of film history. Um, and then when like the next line of dialogue is like, is that him? And then they're like dramatically talking about <laughs> who, who that might be. You're like, all right, this is going to come back in a pivotal moment of the movie. Yeah. And it does come back. And there's like that weird, weirdly intense dramatic moment dramatic moment where he's in the car and he's getting ready to leave and he's like i locked one in the, in the cupboard yeah he's the only person who's managed to successfully capture an alien and instead of calling the cops or anything he's he just like bounces. calls mel gibson yeah yeah exactly he's like you're the only number that i had next yeah. to me and i'm like you couldn't remember 911 um <laughs> and he's also the other fascinating thing is that he he writes himself as the first person who figures out that they don't like water mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he's he's looking at the signs. He's looking at the map, and he's like, "They're not near any near any water." water. Yeah, which again, uh, are we sure the aliens are good? Point number seventy-five. They knew that they didn't like water, yet they still came here. Yeah, and that is mostly the water. life thrives off of water. Yeah. All life thrives from water. Also, like, like obviously, the minute you pull this thread, the entire sweater unravels. But. If you don't like water, I certainly wouldn't go to places that have large-scale irrigation systems like farms. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't like water, yet we are going to make our map via crop. Yeah. Something yeah. that grows because it <laughs> Because is there's water. nothing, but because it gets watered regularly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, again, you pull those threads. Like, this is not a movie that, that holds up under the lightest bit of scrutiny, and that, that's not required. <laughs> Like, that no, doesn't no, no, matter. No, no, no. It's I, still a good time. Yeah, it's a good time. That's my thing. Like, the the plot hole, the, the looking for Easter eggs, like, the way that we watch movies now, I don't enjoy it because it's kind of like, man, just go with it. Like, let it be stupid. Let them, let, yeah. let, let the plot be held together by three toothpicks, but you have a good time. That's okay. There's a, there's a, recent, there's a recent trend in movies, and, it, and it's not really recent. Like, people have been doing it forever. Um, and I think that, I'm working on a theory that Inception was the thing that really brainwormed everybody into mm-hmm. wanting to do this with every single movie, the end of Inception. But there's a recent trend to be like, actually, this whole movie is a dream. You know? Yeah. Actually, that first scene that we see is the only real moment. And then from that point on, X, X Y, and Z switches and the entire movie is a dream. Mm-hmm. Like, And I think this this culminated, the discourse around this culminated with Tar. Yeah. Uh, when... People claimed that the entire everything that we see after a certain point in the movie becomes a dream because the, the main character, Lydia Tarr, starts acting completely differently. Everything starts seeming like it's swarming around her in a different way. It, it, there's like a faux sense of reality to it, surreality to it. Mm-hmm. And I hate this trend. I absolutely despise this trend. Of course, everything in the movie is a dream. It, yeah. It's a movie. It's a it's movie. Fake. Yeah, it's exactly. Like you don't have to buy into the reality in comparison to the real world or in comparison to how you might act in That's that situation. It's a fucking movie. Yeah. It, it, like, there's a difference between how I personally would act versus how a human would act. And that's, like, when I'm, like, uh, I wouldn't stay in the house. It's because I'm, like, well, no human would stay in the house if there's aliens outside. Like, that's – but also, I'm not going to be, like, well, and the rest of the movie's crap because I personally wouldn't do that thing. There's an – the rugged individualism being applied to the film is definitely a mistake. And I agree about the movie thing – like, about the dream thing, too. Yes, that's – let us, like – let us have the flexibility in film to accept that sometimes things are going to be heightened or going to make no sense because film is vibes. Film is 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 creating a feeling in, with pictures, even if it doesn't always make sense, even if it doesn't always logically work. 
Right. And if you are like the type, the type of person who is prone to not like that sort of thing, like, are you also the type of person who's going to go watch like three hour durational cinema about like the human spirit and like the, the like very like neo realistic yeah. style movie? Like, are you also no. seeking that out or are you just like applying your weird dream takes to like fictional movies yeah that's reason. absolutely what it pissing is pissing everybody else yeah off. It, it's like yeah. the the oppenheimer debate currently happening like well you know it's va- it's like well it's not valorizing him just by making a film you understand that as a concept right like we make movies about bad things all the time just putting it into cinema doesn't mean it's praising him there's the guy coming out of barbie being like didn't buy it no yeah <laughs> how could she survive without water <laughs> I don't understand how her she, how a doll developed human parts enough to go to the gynecologist. <laughs> yeah, we're just gonna go I with it, that, man. I need my hand held through that. Yeah, I need that explained a little bit more. I yeah. do think I think like that kind of that sort of viewing of like either the whole thing. It's it's an often it's an issue that I've often seen with like the way that people approach disaster movies, where basically yeah, exactly. You got to meet it on the ground it's on, and you know yeah. Of course the movie is dumb. Of course the premise of whatever is unreasonable. Of course 2012 is going to have a ridiculous premise that the entire, that there's neutrinos that are basically making the Earth's crust slide around like gooey jello. Like none of that's going to make sense. Total nonsense. Who cares? Meet it. Total nonsense. You have to accept that that's just what it's going to be. Meet it where it's at and then go for that ride and see if the ride works. Like. That was real um, peak disaster movie for oh. me, like going to the theater to yeah. see a disaster movie just because of the time period that it came out. And I was like old enough to like want right. to go to the movies all the time. Really actually like Knowing. You remember that movie? The Nicolas Cage yes. movie Knowing? Have yes. you guys done that movie? On Not yet. yet. I've been saving that for some. Like I've been like someone's going to be perfect for a Nicolas Cage film and I haven't figured out who it is yet, but I cannot That's wait. A fave. That's a fave of mine because it was like one of the first movies that oh. I could go to that was like actually maybe going to scare me really? in the theater. Yeah. Well, it's just like it had yeah. sort of like hard thriller adjacent energy to it even though it ended up kind of being like a weird hodgepodge action yeah um puzzle movie in the end but um yes i the trend of people being like i need to figure this movie out or i need to understand i listened to your episode about 65 oh my God. um after i saw that which i thought was a, a delightful c plus of a movie or a right? b minus of a movie it's even. a perfectly it was like totally fine, fine movie and everyone the people was being ex- like those are the wrong dinosaurs it's like really would you have liked the movie better if the dinosaurs had feathers yeah. like come on no none let's, of those di- be, let's be fucking for real here. they straight up made up dinosaurs i don't care they made up ecosystems they had the meteor hit entirely in the wrong part of the entire world don't fucking care man it was a great ride yeah. Yeah. No, it oh I'm so glad you saw sixty five because not enough people have because everyone was like came you know, for it so hard because they didn't understand what the premise was. I saw sixty five at uh Universal City Walk when I was in Los Angeles. Perfect. In March for the Oscars, um, for work for a, a movie podcast that I produced called The Big Picture. And um I just happened to be podcast. in town and they were releasing that the movie and a buddy of mine who's like a big like let's go see dumb action movie yeah. guy. We went to Margaritaville. We had two beers and some some dinner, and then we went to City Walk. And it was like that's the perfect kind of headspace to be in for a silly movie like that. That's such a like I. That's such a high school evening from my like my childhood. Yes. <laughs> like the the go to City Walk, have dinner at a shitty chain restaurant, and then go see yeah. a mediocre but really good action movie. Perfect Friday. Like you can't get I better agree. than that. Yeah. I agree. 
all this panic about movies, then more people need to do shit like that. Yeah, you just need to go see, like, we need to return to a time where we go and see the mediocre movies that we would have watched on TNT. We need to go back to seeing those in theaters again. There was a movie with uh, Idris Elba, Beast, where it was basically like, he punches a lion is essentially the movie. He gets he and his family get stalked through the African bush by one line. Oh, with a I remember this movie. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it the best movie I've ever seen? No. Is it a great fucking time? Absolutely. Yes. Who doesn't want to watch a CGI lion attack a car specifically because he has a vendetta against these three people? Great stuff. We like that was another one. Like I saw that one at City Walk, and there were three people in the theater, and I was like, man, everybody at City Walk right now is missing the fuck out. Because yep. this is 90 minutes that of just stupid. Enjoy. Yes. We, there's like, if you put, plot it on like a, you know, a quadrant or like a chart, there's mm-hmm. like bad, bad movies. Yeah. There's good, bad movies, which is like, maybe like 65 is actually, you know, it's like pretty decent yeah. actually. It's, so it's like somewhere in that middle zone. Then there's bad, good movies. Yeah. That's like Empire of Light, where it's like, you put a lot of craft in this. You clearly have mm-hmm. like a, a DP who knows what the fuck they're doing. Yeah. But also like the movie sucks. Yeah. So I don't really care about this. And then there's good, good movies, which of course we, we like have plenty of space for in culture. So we need to just shift a little bit more of the movies that are being made to be like good, bad movies. Yeah. No, I, I totally like that. That breakdown actually makes a lot of sense to me. That's a really good way, like quadrant based way to breakdown films because yeah this there's the good bad is a very important category in film history for us like yeah that's most of most of the lasting movies fall into the good bad category everything Nicolas Cage does falls into there yes national treasure national treasure I I, face off peak good bad oh I see my peak good bad for me is now Con Air like that's true I I watched all Nick Cage movies all Nick yeah it's all Nick Cage movies I watched I had never really I never watched Face Off, The Rock, or Con Air, so I went through and watched like all three of those back to back within a week, um, and I was like, "Wow, this is he might be our greatest filmmaker." I don't know. <laughs> By the end of it, I was like, "This is just there might be no greater actor than Nicolas Cage," because even if he's not giving you the best performance, he's always giving you a performance. Like, yes. there has never been a time that Nicolas Cage has showed up on screen and not tried his hardest, and I really got to appreciate that. In, in someone that he's never showed up and just collected a paycheck. Exactly. Yeah. He's not mailing it in. He's no. there to punch the clock, baby. Yeah. Like, you know, when we look at uh, Alec Baldwin has gotten into the, the geezer the geezer features, the, the ones that are like all the shitty, you know, like what Russ wound up being. Um, and we recently covered a movie. Um, I can't remember the name of it at the moment. But there was recently he was in a... a tornado movie where he shows up and is on screen for like five minutes and he's given a performance and he looks like he's having a good time for a change but we don't always get that kind of performance from alec baldwin whereas if nicholas cage was in a bunch of really shitty direct to video every single performance would be the most one thing yes you're completely right one thing about alec baldwin is that you need to have like a script writer that understands that he can give just the most nonsense lines yeah a, a sense of seriousness because of the way that like that gravelly like weird delivery that he has i'm not really a baldwin guy myself, no but his but his line delivery his like the way that he says sentences makes it he can say like potato pancakes in a way that you're just like yes. yeah that's right that's wise and i think mission impossible really cracked this code with him because he can deliver lines like ethan hunt is the human manifestation of destiny or something like that <laughs> and you're just like sure he is Fuck it, I don't care. He definitely is. Thanks, Alec Baldwin, director of the CIA. 
I think what it comes down to is Alec Baldwin's really well suited to be the face of a cult. Yeah. But like maybe not well suited to interact with regular society. Right. Yeah. Right. I think that's because maybe he, the divide. I don't think he does. In real no, life. no, no, he doesn't. But like he maybe shouldn't be allowed to, but he definitely could, could successfully lead a cult because he would say things like the great comet will come and then all of us will be carried away on it. And I would believe it when he says it because he would say it in his Alec Baldwin voice. Right. Yeah. So, okay, we've talked about, I think this is pretty much everything. Is there anything that we haven't covered with regard to the movie itself that you're like, I can't walk away from this without covering, like mentioning this one part of this movie? Um, uh, I don't think so. We talked we talked a lot about the baseball stuff. I had yeah. a lot of thoughts about that. I was like, 507 feet, probably not going to be able to hit a home run that far, but I understand that M. Night needs people to, even lay people who don't understand baseball mm-hmm. terminology and distances to understand that this is a long fucking home run. Yeah. But... Um, I did, were you thinking about player comps for for Joaquin's character during the during the movie? Because I was, I, I was, was sitting there n- being like, "This guy is Mark Reynolds." <laughs> I was not thinking of player comps mostly because I I, I have zero pay zero attention to to to, uh, to stats. Um, right. I have no interest in them whatsoever. As far as I'm concerned, they're all very good if they're on my team, and if they're not, on, and I don't hate them. If they're on my team and I hate them, they're terrible, and that's all I care about. Like. I will. I can't even tell you sometimes who's a lefty and who's a righty. I, I just. I know that that's a part of the game. You just game. see faces. I just see faces, and I'm just like, well, yeah. I know what he's good at doing. I know what he's not good at. I'm a real guts person. Is how I'd like to. I'm an old school uh-huh. scout. Let's go right, with that. Right. Right. Um. But no. So good, so good face. He's got good face. Yeah. I mean, like, oh, you know, he's he's got lower half thickness. I like that. You know, that's that's how I approach how's the he, game. How's he wear his jeans? <laughs> For the record, these are actual things that people discuss when they're discussing baseball players. I'm yes, not just being horny about baseball players. I'm also being horny about baseball players. See? You're like reappropriating the inherent horniness built into baseball. That's the thing. You know, you're just you're just literalizing it. Yeah, I'm just being like, you know, those scouts were on to something. They're correct. Having a really nice ass does make for a good pitcher. Exactly. It's strong base. It's a strong base. It's where the power comes from mentally and physically. And this is why bringing Kike Hernandez back to the Dodgers is going to win them a World Series. I listen. I am thrilled that we have our little clown back. I don't understand any of it, but I'm thrilled. Uh, I'm thrilled for you. He's, his it feels are, right. His feels pants like are the, so tight. I love the that. Earth is back on the right axis. It's spinning on the right axis. Again. Yeah, I just the, without getting too because obviously, like I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of baseball listeners on this podcast, but without getting too into it. I was definitely feeling like the Dodgers this year kind of had this feeling of a bunch of coworkers who really like each other um, and get along really well. But like it's it's a professional work hang. We needed someone who was going to bring a little bit of inappropriateness. And mm-hmm. I'm really glad it's Kike Hernandez who's bringing it a little bit back to like, mm, this is going to be the guy who's going to bump dicks with everyone. Like, <laughs> great. We need someone there to bump some dicks. Yeah, you have to have that. You, you have, have to have, like, one person. Plain, simple fact of life. Yeah, and now we have him again. Now we have our little clown again. So, okay. So, yeah. So, you, you that was your, your comp? Was, was Yeah, Mark, Mark Reynolds. Mark Reynolds. Arizona Diamondbacks third baseman who set the single season record for strikeouts. Uh, swung out of his ass and somehow hit, like, 40 home runs one year. Mark Reynolds. Yeah. Then, like three people listening will think that that reference is very funny and the rest of the people will go straight over their head. Yeah, I mean, it's I, it, that is that is barely something I recognize. And I still think it's a really good one just <laughs> from that from the from the the fact that, yeah, as, as a hitter, 
that's definitely who he was. There's no sense with Joaquin Phoenix character. Like, when you're talking about baseball himbos, there's two kinds of baseball himbos. And one is guy who has a big stick who is just really happy he can hit things. And the other is, this is a guy who doesn't understand anything except for baseball. And, like, yes, Cody Yes, but Bellin- he understands every single thing about it innately. Yeah. Like, he's just a baseball idiot. And Cody Bellinger is a great example of a baseball idiot. It's like um, how golden retrievers in regular settings, you're like, that's not a particularly bright dog. And then it goes to, like, is a hunting dog. And you're like, wow, okay, so that's the one thing that dog does. Same thing with Cody Bellinger in baseball. It's like, well, this is a man who has on the record said that he melted a cutting board because he thought that it went in the oven. (laughs) Did you, you've heard that one, right? I have, yeah. Uh, yeah. He's just, so, there's so many things with him that it's so easy to forget all of the things that he said. Yeah, there's, it's, that's the thing. Like, there's so much about him where you're just like, you can't, he has to stay in baseball because yep. Yep. there is nothing, like, this man cannot go out into the world otherwise. It's, it is a level of chaos and it's like Big Bird trying to, it's it's like Big Bird getting stranded somewhere and having to hitchhike home. And you're just like, Big Bird's <laughs> not going to be suited for that. Same thing with Cody Bellinger. Like Cody Bellinger's yeah. not equipped to have a day job. Yeah. Um, Joaquin Phoenix's character in this isn't a baseball idiot. He kind of just seems like a dude who's always been really good swinging a stick. Yeah. And that's an important kind of baseball himbo to have. It's just like, and that's, and those are the ones who, fail out who fail out before they get to the majors because yeah, they're uh, yeah he couldn't he didn't have complex problem solving skills he just he again see ball hit ball see ball hit ball that's all he could do and that's why his thing was like he, he even says in the movie when he's like i just didn't see a reason not to swing and it's like yeah i bet you didn't yeah i bet you never understood anything that your your hitting coaches were trying to give you on scouting reports i bet a scouting report did not make any sense to you sir <laughs> so yeah no uh, should we go to uh, recasting? Should we recast this with all members of the Dodgers? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, first I want to do, do you, I mean, it's always tough with M. Night Shyamalan movies because obviously, like, this is a man who makes a movie specifically for the purpose of subtext. Yeah. Do you have a what is this movie really about? Or, oh, like, it doesn't um, have to be. It can just be that you're like, yeah, this is a movie about faith and that he either did or didn't accomplish that well, but... You know, do you think there's any subtext to this that maybe even M. Night wasn't aware of? I think this is a, it's, it's a movie about, it's kind of a movie about movie history, honestly. It's like, it's a movie about like his version, his, his swing at like, oh, I want to do like what Spielberg did early in his career. Like, oh, I want to try to, you know, make my version of the Alien Invasion B movie and, and put my little twist on it and whatnot. But it's also... It's kind of a movie about like how information travels, you know, and how you can like lean in or lean out of the way that information travels um, and choose to believe what you want to believe, which fits into the larger theme of like it being really about just like crisis of faith and what you choose to see in the world and and what you tell yourself and how that gets you through challenging activities or even just like day to day life. That's kind of what I think the movie is about. But really, it's also just about like, I like these carefully curated shots of these Iowa slash Pennsylvania <laughs> cornfields and the aliens coming down. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting about like the idea of the subjectivity, because of the fact that like we even get that with the aliens, where it kind of sounds like the aliens are uh, 
you know, people have different ideas of what the aliens look like or that the aliens have sort of masking technology or people aren't totally sure what they look like. So that's actually really interesting because, yeah, I think that totally goes in there with it. Yeah. 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 To me, like the main thing that I just thought from the very beginning of it, technically, but also just like story wise, was like perspective was the word that I kept coming back to because so much of this movie. Yeah. The the point of view of the camera is just like straight on the characters faces and not really on what they're seeing. And so to me that like created a heightened sense of how much of this is um, what they're how much am how much am I supposed to be like weighing what they're seeing versus how much am I supposed to be thinking about what it's making them feel. Oh, and interesting. Okay. I, I think it was like in a lot of ways, that's why to me, it's not really like a horror movie. Yeah. You know, it's like classified as horror, thriller, sci-fi, that sort of thing. And it is kind of all of those things, but it's not a horror movie is meant to like elicit audience reaction. Whereas like, mm-hmm. I think this movie is more so meant to um, like elicit like a, contemplative view viewership of the movie like like you watch how these different effects are morphing and pulling on like the internal dynamics that the characters already had in them so i to me it wasn't really like horror in that way well it's interesting because yeah i i do agree like i think that's very true and i we see that too in like um the happening which is obviously like one of his other great disaster great total bomb yeah great used very liberally because that is a nonsense movie um (laughs) And interestingly, like, now that I think about it, both of these movies are movies in which basically, like, this thing happens because there's normally, like, kind of two genres of disaster. There's either a disaster where the hero has to stop it or where the hero has to survive it. And both of these are movies where the hero has to survive it, which often means that, like, they don't have to have a resolution. They don't have to figure out how to solve the problem. They just got to get through it to the other side. Very rarely do you have a hero just has to survive it disaster movie where the hero has to do so little yeah um to like survive the end where like they kind of just come out and everyone's like oh actually it's all over now you missed the end of it of the disaster things are cool now and in signs you have them sleeping 12 hours in the basement explicitly stated 12 hours which is an insane amount of time to sleep I've, i've done it i sleep 12 hours regularly i have never once slept 12 hours on the floor i have don't think I've ever slept 12 hours. Oh, God. I'm not a good sleeper like this, and I certainly would not be a good sleeper in this, these circumstances. Well, that's the thing. Like, I just, there's no world in which I'm going to be able to sleep soundly for 12 hours in an alien apocalypse. Like, I don't... While my kid is having an asthma attack and his lungs are closing. Yeah, the which again goes to the whole thing of like, well, Val Gibson as a dad in this film is, made, like, you would think he would maybe stay awake or like have a rotating shift of somebody guarding the door, anything. Yes. No, yes. they just pass out. And similarly, in the happening, like, the trees just kind of stop. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh, oh, we're outside and it's safe now? Cool. Uh, movie's over. Bye, guys. Go on home. Um, so Just a really long analogy for allergy season. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of what this movie's really about, like, before I bring up mine, because mine is, is not as interesting as what I'm about to posit here, um, there was a Screen Rants article that was basically made the argument that these aren't aliens, these are demons. Oh, and they basically the argument is that these are demons, which is why they show up at his house. The signs in his backyard kind of look like a pitchfork. 
And their other argument is that, like, well, it's, that's why everyone, no one can really describe what the aliens look like because everyone sees demons differently. And the last part of it is, and what what is kind of the, what, what the writer thinks is sort of the sending at home is all of the water in a priest's house is holy water. Mm-hmm. And so the holy water is burning the aliens. And so that is the proof that actually, and then, oh, and also like the Middle East, the three small cities in the Middle East that figured out how to eliminate, how to fight back against the aliens, that that's going to be, I think it was like Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and somewhere else. Like they were in Me- like Mecca. Like somebody made the, they were making the argument of basically like, oh, it was the three, the foundation of the three Abrahamic religions uh, are the ones who are fighting back against the aliens and therefore they're demons. Um, as a concept, how do you feel about that one? I think it's compelling. I also think like, the imagery of the movie not necessarily like within the actual movie but like if you look at the movie poster for example it does have sort of like a fiery depths of hell energy to the crop circle itself which isn't really recreated in in the movie yeah um but there is like a you know particularly to abigail breslin's performance as the the daughter Mm -hmm. there is like a ghostly almost like the exorcist energy to some of the ways that she's talking about these things yeah, and how she keeps saying, you know, she has like a couple of lines in there where, um, you know, she's, she's like the water is contaminated and it's like, she can see things that other people can't, which obviously I know like that whenever you say that phrase, like you think of M night's other most successful movie, the sixth sense. But I, I think it's compelling I also don't know necessarily how much it matters, you know, whether these are aliens or whether these are demons, it is like a foreign invasion of their home. And I think that like, even if they are aliens, like functionally in the story, like what they are serving as and him, him like refinding his faith after he's able to overcome this, that's like biblical anyway. So I, I, I like it. I like it. I, I think that it's, it stands up to scrutiny. And it's sort of hard to know the intent of it. But I wonder if M. Night's ever talked about that. I mean, my feeling is kind of like, so the reason I bring it up is partly because I think that that's doing the thing that we were talking about before of like trying to, not trying to take the movie for more than it is, but like, yes, aliens are kind of the modern manifestation of the prior fears we had of demons. The place that, the role demons would have taken in a film or in sort of mythology the role that demons took on in the you know middle ages and 1800s like all through life um in the west at least like that's obviously i think been subsumed by aliens to a degree i personally think that it's kind of silly to make the art like this this art made the argument explicitly that the not that the aliens are a metaphor for demons but they literally were demons Mm-hmm. that doesn't work so well for me. Um, people are like, well, that makes the water thing make more sense because why would aliens come to a planet with water? It's like, well, it doesn't make sense because if the issue is holy water, that still doesn't answer why they made the specific choice to come here and avoid all coastal cities. And the argument is like, well, because they aren't as religious on coastal cities, that's not true. Well, that's bullshit. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't really stand up. Yeah, I think it's taking... I, this is literally a movie about a priest having a crisis of faith. I don't think that we as an addition need the de- 
the aspect of, and there are little literal demons attacking him. But it's an interesting interpretation of it. But it's not my what is this movie about, but I had to bring it up because uh, particularly because a couple people said when I mentioned signs, like people were sending me that specifically to be like, look, it solves all the problems. Yeah. Eh, does it? And also, are they problems? Or were these aliens just bad planners? Yeah. Could be both. The, the aliens were mid. Yeah. I mean, like, in fairness, if I'm an alien, I'm kind of going to assume humans cannot figure out my weakness. Like, we're not that smart. We're not that clever. The only way that Mel Gibson finds out by accident that the water is bad for them is because his brother hits a baseball bat into an alien so hard that he falls into the TV and knocks off water. Like, it's an accident that the Wicked Witch, that, like, the Wicked Witch of the West has the same vulnerabilities as aliens. Yes, exactly. So, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I don't mind the idea of aliens as aliens and they just kind of like well we're pretty sure we can scout out these humans they're not going to guess our weakness and we can get in and out um and do all our abductions as needed i think this movie is about the patriarchy but not in the way that the movie thinks it's about the patriarchy Uh uh-huh this is a movie like so i think it's a movie about how the patriarchy fails men um which like obviously barbie movies doing that talking about that right now but I like this is a movie about this is a guy who, you know, despite being called father, he despite being called father repeatedly in this film, he is not prepared to take on the role of dad. And this is a movie about a man who never fully gets the equipment to take on that role, not because of the circumstances of the world around him, but because of his own the failings. Like you get the sense that this was the dad who was always the ask your mom dad. And he's never been able to step up since and take on, which is why he ends up in a democracy vote with children about whether or not to flee the house. And so I think that that is what this movie is actually about, is how do the systems we have in place, the roles we give ourselves, the roles like priest, the roles like a parent, how do those roles have to change and how do they kind of, how does the inability to change with those roles, how is that partly a function of what we're prepared to do? I don't think that he has ever, that his he was ever prepared to parent and now he's left without an option except to parent. And this is a movie about a man who, for better or worse, is being forced to parent. And so, yeah, I think it's kind of, I think it is the patriarchy of dads don't need to be prepared dads don't need to be the ones there's a great bluey episode about which the best piece of i think modern television is bluey i'm sorry it's just inex- there's no argument to me um but the, the episode is about the dad wanting to take the kids to the pool and the mom doesn't pack them or anything he's like i'm doing a pool day i'm in charge and he doesn't remember to bring anything and he doesn't bring the sunblock and he doesn't bring the toys and all these things. And it's not a movie. It's not an episode of like, oh, look at how goofy the dad is. It's more like, hey, you don't see the work mom does just because she isn't the fun one. Like it's a movie. Of, it, it's an episode about like being the fun parent versus being the practical parent. But the point is in that same way of like the running joke of dads not being prepared for things, it's because they're not the ones who are expected to parent. And I think it's about the patriarchy in that way. Um, that, you know, the, the patriarchy fails dads because they're not prepared to go into these situations and be the parent. And then they end up, everyone's lost faith. Everyone's lost, you know, figuring out what to do. And that's how you end up in a situation in the basement without an inhaler. It's, it's interesting that that was your read on the movie. 
um, you know, there's this article from uh, on the ringer from one of my coworkers, um, a Q and a with M night about, mm-hmm. uh, about this movie, um, because they were doing a series on summer blockbusters and, um, the writer asks, you know, when did the actual idea come to you? And, uh, he's basically talking about how those, the, these movies at this period in his life were mm-hmm. kind of more like journal entries, he calls them. And, uh, yeah, Abigail Breslin is five in the movie. His daughter was five at the time that he was writing it. Yeah. And so if you think of it almost like as a function, as a manifestation of the things that he's worried about, like in his own life, like he's worried about parenting. these yeah. kids. He's worrying about forgetting to bring things. He's worried about not being emotionally, all these things that fathers would be worried about, you know, even, and even if he's not like, you know, even if he doesn't have the same shortcomings as Mel Gibson's character, you can have that like yeah. that fear in the back of your head that you're not doing things right and that you're going to fuck up your kid and things like that. You know, I have a lot of friends who like have young kids Absolutely. right now and they have like similar fears where it's like, even if I'm trying to do everything like to a T, am I going to try so hard on one aspect and forget to do this other thing? And I think that like the Gibson character in the movie is clearly trying so hard to be like reasonable about what's going on. He prior to his wife says he was trying so hard to be a community member, a priest, yeah. like a community pillar for the the town. And um in that way, like that reading is like oh this is a movie about a fear of being a bad father. I think that it it actually it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. I and that's really interesting to know that that's where he kind of was at because yeah, that would totally play in. And, like, the fear of, of parenting without the person who kind of you're like, well, she's the parent in this. Like, that's which is often the role that moms end up playing. Like, yeah. Then all of a sudden, it's this man who is being called father by everyone and he isn't parenting and he's not prepared to parent. And he's never been really set up to do that by the expectations of society or anything else. Um, would would have loved one capper at the end of him being like, and honey, we're going to take you to therapy for your water. But otherwise, <laughs> this was a guy who was struggling with like, as much as I am, as, as much as I'm like, ugh, okay, you're, you're, you're making some bad choices here, dude. None of them are choices that I don't understand him making. Like, yeah, there's him, a sense of like, yeah. chaos and overwhelmingness to like everything that's going on, especially yeah. I thought that that was like really well rendered in the scene where they're having like the last supper scene, you know, like before, like when they make all of these chaos meals. Yeah. And he's like, all right, we finally did all this stuff and we're sitting down to eat it. And now we get in a fight and we don't actually eat this like that. That feels accurate to like parenthood and family dynamics. Like that feels that feels lived. Yeah. And it feels real in a specific like dad who doesn't know how to handle the emotions of the moment realness like that yeah but cares still you know like he clearly still loves the kids yeah this is there's no sense of like uh, unlike in war of the worlds where tom cruise his character very clearly like not only is not equipped to be a dad in this situation but also seems kind of like the kids would be better off if they weren't with him yeah um whereas here it's like "Mm, it's not that they'd be better off if they weren't with him it's just that everyone needed to have more guardrails in place like six months prior yeah so okay, fantasy casting. You are do, are you recasting this with the Dodgers? Because I fucking love that idea. No, I am not. I'm okay. not going to do that. Um, it's funny actually. Uh, one of the one of the people that I was considering in my fantasy cast, mm-hmm. I'll just say right off the rip, was uh, I was thinking of putting Mark Ruffalo as the actually as the police officer because I okay. think that part is part is kind of boring. But I I um, saw when I was researching it 
uh, he was originally supposed to play. Ruffalo was originally supposed to play Joaquin Phoenix's character. So he was originally supposed to be the brother, oh. which I think adds a totally different energy to the movie. Because I'm not sure that Ruffalo can do like the "there's nothing going on." No, there's no in my head kind of guy. He's like the kind of he's like he's like the kind of like bookish professor type Ruffalo to me. Um, yeah. You know, like the yeah. spotlight role and like well, the there's a reason Zodiac he's such a good role. Hulk. Like, yes, there's a exactly. reason he's, he's a scientist. He's a yeah. scientist. Yeah, he's just a real handsome nerd. All right, so uh, dream recasting. Um, I struggled with the kids, so okay. maybe you can help me out a little bit there because I don't know a lot of child actors that I feel confident like putting into movies. I feel like child actors should be discovered in movies. Like yeah, this. but yeah, yeah. Um, in the Mel Gibson role, I replaced it. I replaced him um, with a mother. And that is going to be played by Kate Winslet. Great. Who legendary for her Philadelphia accent in uh, what is the TV series? What is that? What is that oh, called? Uh, Mayor of Easton. Or... Mayor of Easton. Yeah. 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 So she she proved to me that she could be a true Philadelphian. She sounds that. like so someone I, who's I, eating a hoagie. Uh, exactly. My beloved Kate Winslet. Uh, I put Miles Teller in the Joaquin Phoenix role because oh, he can okay. play um, he can play a moron. He yeah, <laughs> I, no, I would believe it. <laughs> he's well suited for the blank slate moronness, absolutely. Exactly. So for the for the kids, I mean, I don't really know. I, I guess I put like I wrote down Julia Butters, who you know is oh a, Julia Butters played. is a great kid act. Like she yeah, she's got a real Dakota she would be Fanning like the older vibe, kid. So, yeah. You know, she would be like the older sister, and then we'd have to cast like a younger sister or brother or whatever. I, I didn't write anyone for the Abigail Breslin role. I think that could and be then, an, an an and introducing, like yes. absolutely. Also, by the way, Miles Teller uh, as as an actor is, has often served the role of we don't like we, historically. Um, has been fantasy cast as a character who will die very soon into the movie. Same with Ansel Elsgort. Like Miles, yeah, well, that's... Miles and, and Ansel have made many appearances in fantasy casting as like, and they play the guy who dies in the first scene. So yeah. l- happy to see him return, even if like as an actor, I'm not always happy to see him return. Um, I love Miles. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of yeah. him, but I know that he's divisive. He's divisive, um, but he's like a divisive in a way that can be very fun to be like, oh, I fucking hate that guy. Like yes, it's he has a, like one of those faces that you could be like kind of allergic to. But yeah, I, ever since ever since I watched him in Whiplash, I'm like I'm kind of just in on that guy. So I love that movie. It's the there's a real thing of like there's a series of actors who you just they annoy the shit out of you. Like they're either annoying or they're morally reprehensible. But damn it, they're really good at what they do. And I feel yes. like he falls in that category real well. Um, for the for the police officer is played by Cherry Jones, who I know as Nan from Succession. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're a Succession watcher. She's doing like a weird Southern accent. I thought maybe the accent work could have used a little work, but that's yeah. just me being like a regional Philadelphian and having it bother me. Which also M Night is, so that should have bothered him a little bit more. Her too. performance in that is so her her pacing, her performance, her line deliveries, and everything. Like I love Bizarre. Cherry Jones. It's very that was when I was like, this is weird. He's coaching the actors. Weird. This isn't an acting choice. I think she's making. I think he yeah. told her to deliver it flatter. I wrote like, down a uh, Eben Moss Bacharach. Who? Oh my is, god! Yes, he's just a tremendous actor in a yeah. lot of things, and and recently become a lot more famous for being um, in you know the Star Wars TV show and also um, in the Bear. Yeah, uh, he's and sensational. And he he absolutely could play a small town county sheriff. Oh like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. That's and he could do the accent work too. So I also this was this was the part that i also wanted to expand the mm. most which was the m night role ray ready i wanted that person to have like a little bit more depth and like sure. be able to participate in the movie a little bit more and in order to do that you need to cast someone who can um, really step into those larger shoes and mm-hmm. so i wrote down two names one of them is steven yun and the other one is diego calva 
Ooh, both of those are really good. I those are really good options. Because yeah, I mean, you you obviously you can't keep M Night if you're gonna have him actually have to you know be on screen for more than a minute. Right. Um, but no, oh, I love, like I'm always I my default is almost always I'm like, could I just recast this with Steve Yeun? And I'm like, I have oh, to, he's the best. He's so good. But- He's also like almost so good that you're like, should he just be the the lead of this movie? Yeah. Like it's tough to put him in in this kind of like smaller bit role. Diego Calva is, uh, I think he became famous ma- mainly through Babylon, which was Damien Damien yeah. Chazelle's movie last year, which a lot of people hated, but I personally. Loved. I know you're you're very much in the Babylon cl- in the Babylon clan the hive. Or whatever the hive yeah the yeah. Babylon hive um, a Babylonian and Calva, Calva has such a expressive face yeah communicates emotions so well and so that part being the part that is like the central emotional challenge to the movie where he accidentally kills the wife like i feel yeah. like you could convey that sense of uh, exasperation and desperation really well yeah i'm I, I like i i I like that and i do agree that yeah we probably could have could have gotten a little more out of that character before he went fleeing to the coast or wherever he was going to the Jersey Shore. Going to the, going to the lake. Yeah. That's actually really going going down the shore. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if like actually Wawa on the way down to the shore? He's gonna listen to the Phil's game on the radio. <laughs> Everyone just flees to Cape May. Yeah, the aliens exactly. can't get us there. Their weaknesses: water and saltwater taffy. That's so funny. Um, how about you? Do you have do you have Dreamcasts? So I don't so much have a Dreamcast as I want to restructure this entire movie around Cherry Jones, the sheriff. And make it a movie about, yeah, I'm doing a full perspective shift and I want it to be about Cherry Jones, the sheriff, who's like seeing these increasingly weird things happening in her, in her little small town. And eventually she has to, uh, she's the one who finds out about the aliens and she's the one who, you know, fights off the aliens and saves it. Like I want it to be sort of a slow methodical thriller with Cherry Jones uh, fighting aliens. So that would be, if someone came to me and was like, we're remaking it, that, that would be how I'd do it. Because... It's great. I think that I I think that the the family the family mini structure of the film is fantastic. Um, I don't know that I would ever want to replicate like be able to or try to replicate. So instead, I would I would redirect and and I wanted to see more Cherry Jones. I always want to see more like Cherry that. Jones. Yeah, that's like a. It's almost like how in Stranger Things, like the Jim Hopper character, the David Harbour yeah. performance. Like it would be sort of more like that storyline in Stranger Things. Where exactly. It's just like, denying that these are supernatural occurrences and then like finally try having to like resign that you don't understand this thing yeah for sure and you know even like even the idea of it being a crisis of faith like more people can have a crisis of faith than just a you know former episcopalian priest like she can have a crisis of faith too we can still keep that she gives up the law she becomes a she becomes a defund the police frontline protester hell yes the movie's actually about acab Exactly. <laughs> the aliens are actually the police state. Um, that would have been that actually would have been a great, a great and very like uh, um, uh, expected reading from me. Yeah, I know the the I I actually so I have I have the tipping pitches unrelated to everything, but just a fangirl. So I have the the tipping pitches pitches unionize the miners tea um, with the Dodger logo, the Dodger font. I also separately from People City Council have a defund the police tea with yes, the with exact the same, same logo. logo and those yeah. are just like I I use them interchangeably and I'm never sure when I pull them out which one I've grabbed that day but no matter whenever, what 
Same vibe. Whenever I go to a Dodgers game and I, I've seen people wearing those ones and mm-hmm. I've been wearing my union as a minor stuff or whatever, and we pass each other or we're just like, you know, ni- yeah. nice little nod. You know, like how, how people who drive Jeeps, like when they see each other on yeah. the street, they give each other a little head nod. Like that's how, that's how we are with our merch. It's the hobo code, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's the hobo code, but for podcasting. Exactly. So, okay. How many, uh, how many towering infernos out of five are you giving this one? You can do quarters if you want to do like a build, like three stories of a building and then a quarter of a build, a story, whatever you want. I just going to go nice, even round number three out of five. Okay. Just, I think this is a textbook three out of five. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a middle of the road, successful execution, entertaining. Um, not something that I really would want to revisit. Not something that really, to me, like, reinvigorated the genre or anything yeah. like that but but just like a very competent filmmaker announcing himself as someone who knows how to compose shots and ratchet up tension and for that it's good enough for a three out of five for me yeah i think that's totally fair i i would probably i was gonna go like a 3.5 um it's not something i'm gonna ever choose to watch but it's a really good movie it's not I don't like I am sure that there are people who are like, this is my comfort movie. It's never going to be one of my go to's, even if I weren't afraid of aliens. It's just not as I it's not. I feel like it doesn't quite hold together as nicely as some of the other blockbusters that get ranked higher. Yeah. That being said, if this were made for TV, be a great fucking made for TV. Great movie for TV movie. It's if this movie came out now, I'd be pumped. Yeah. Make more stuff like this. Yeah, again, this falls into that 65 beast demographic of good, bad. It's not great. It's fine. And if it were on television and I came in at halfway through, I'd probably watch it. I guess I say something like make this make this now. But mm-hmm. then also like Jordan Peele made Nope last year and it's just like the much better version of this. And so well, what am I really actually talking about? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that's the thing is that there's it, he did a really good job. It's one of those movies that does a really good job within the pre- the capabilities of that particular filmmaker, this script in the hands of another filmmaker would be a completely different movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and that's, I think, or in the hands of a different screenwriter. Like, and obviously it's going to be completely different. Like, yes, literally, obviously. I'm not saying anything particularly brilliant, but in the sense of could this have been better executed by somebody who's a little more competent with narrative? Could this have been, if, could this, should this have been handed off to somebody who could have landed the plane better? Maybe. But it's a really did good time. See, did you see Nope? Absolutely not. Your, uh, aliens. Say, you know, aliens alien in person, Nope, but. not happening. Um, I know I know it. I know like of it. And um, I've seen Get Out and I've seen um, Us. So like I'm very familiar with how he can work and play with the genre and all those things. But yeah. Uh-uh. For listeners of the show who are not as allergic to aliens as Amanda. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen Nope. See no. Just has my full-throated recommendation. Jordan is a genius. Yeah, everyone, everybody's like, I have heard great things about it, and it looks cool as shit. And it's truly just, I'm like, I just have zero desire to watch a movie where like, there's an alien ship hovering over Southern California. Yeah, not that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. But also at the same time, I know Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer on screen together. Stephen Yun, it's all my people. It's such a good, it's such a good cast. It's such a great. I know, and I really do like Jordan Peele. Like, I just love his storytelling. Um, But yeah, so I yeah no, I think I think three three point five. Like I think we're falling in a fair range for this movie. And that takes us to the end. So, Bobby, is there anything that you want to promote? Do you happen to, I don't know, have an 
incredible baseball podcast or be a producer of other podcasts or anything that you would like to, where can we find you? Where can we listen to you? This is your chance. Yes, you can find me um, hosting a weekly baseball podcast, which is about kind of a lot of stuff that is too hard to explain. But it's about labor. It's about baseball as pop culture. It's it's about me and my co-host and best friend's relationship. It's about him choosing new teams to root for and betraying me. All that <laughs> stuff. That is called Tipping Pitches. It is available wherever you get podcasts. Um, we're on Twitter, I guess, for the time being still. Yeah. Tipping underscore pitches. Um, and then you can also find me talking more about movies. Um, over on a movie podcast called The Big Picture, um, which comes out twice a week. I produce that show, but then you'll hear me chiming in every once in a while, defending my generation, you know, standing up for essential texts like Shrek oh, and Finding Nemo. It's so vital. Like, you serve a very important role in that, and that's to make sure that, yeah, some of the kids' movies were fucking great. Some movies exactly. that, yeah, maybe Spy he Kids, didn't... National Treasure, all that good stuff. Yeah, just because it's not in the Academy Museum doesn't mean it isn't worth remembering and commemorating yes there needs to be a trash academy museum there needs to be i agree yeah i just want the, like the good bad academy museum yes here first i own that i own that trademark yeah no, bobby bobby no that's remember that's, you said it you're in charge we can start fundraising i'm in on this thank you amanda this was so much fun i i really appreciate you having me on i appreciate always going back and re-emerging my re uh, uh immersing myself into the m night universe well thank you so much for being here it was great to have you i really appreciate it and uh, thank, guys, check out Tipping Pitches. Uh, even if you're not particularly into baseball, you're going to have a great time listening to it. Yeah, it could be the reason that you backdoor yourself into liking baseball. Because yeah. you don't actually talk about baseball that much. So. You really don't. And, and you guys are single-handedly responsible for unionizing the entirety of minor league baseball. So, like, we did it all. You guys, are, we you guys all, are the foremost we labor podcast as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You flatter us. <laughs> Thanks, Bobby. Okay, couple quick things before um, I you guys stop listening when I start doing the sign-offs. Real quick, biggest, very exciting news. Um, I'm going to go back to a once-a-week schedule because my original thought was there's no way that I'm going to be able to convince enough people to like come on and talk about these stupid movies with me. And as it turns out, there's a lot of people who want to come on and talk about these ridiculous, stupid movies with me. So starting next week, uh, we'll be back on the every week schedule and we've got jada elcock coming back to talk about the meg too um jada came on a few years ago to talk about the original meg and i am so excited that we get to have her back to talk about more jason statham shark punching um so that'll be up next week you can see the meg if it's still in theater the meg too if it's still in theaters please see it um because it's actually really fun and um then the other thing there's a new review um so this is from CL King 75 title super fun and cool five stars disaster movies genre is interesting. I just love listening to the conversation and the deep dive into what the movie is really about. The fan casting is the best part. Thank you so much for writing the review. In addition to the fact that like it absolutely makes my morning when I get that notification in my like daily email blast from chartable. Um, it's also really great feedback. I was kind of wondering if you guys still liked the fantasy casting, so I'll keep that in. Um, so thank you again for taking the time to write a five-star rating and review. If you guys haven't done it yet, please take a few minutes to do so. Uh, it's super helpful, especially for small independent pods. And then, of course, um, I'm Amanda Smith says on Twitter. I'm Amanda Smith on Blue Sky. And then we are Disaster Girls uh what are we? Disaster underscore pod on Twitter. We're Disaster Girls at Blue Sky. Um, Disaster Girls pod at gmail.com. 
and uh, we'll see. I'll see y'all back next week for Jada Elcock with the Meg Two. Bye, guys. <laughs>